Welcome to Victory Fellowship's online podcast library. We hope you enjoy this message today. For he must reign, talking about Jesus, he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. It's talking about Jesus right now, the man, the resurrected, glorified man, Jesus of Nazareth, is seated at the right hand of God, ruling until all his enemies are placed under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he's put everything in subjection under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put in subjection, it's clear that this does not include the one, the Father, who put everything in subjection to him. And when everything is subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be. Now here's the phrase. This is a beautiful Pauline phrase, all in all. That God may be all in all. Everyone say all in all. Now Paul was... He was a master with words. You know, I was looking. We have a picture on on the wall in our house of Paul the Apostle and his conversion. I was was eating my cereal this morning. I was sitting there looking at this picture of Paul. It's right there in front of me, and I'm sitting there looking at it. It's it's gigantic. I mean, it's like huge. It's like almost a life-size person in there. And And I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, you are really something else. You know, you... Paul was not, had, had no intention of being saved. He was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And you said, I'm going to mess this dude's life up big time. And I'm going to use him as a testimony. He picked the greatest possible testimony. And it was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul just got, he got whacked. And he got, he literally got consumed, eaten up, swallowed up by God. Is what happened to him. He was swallowed up by God. Swallowed. Just his life was consumed by God. And he was, he was caught up into this. And this God is some, you know, he's not part of this creation. He's, he's different from this creation. He's in, in, in so many ways. It's by revelation. We, we touch him and he, he opens our heart and our eyes and our ears. But, but he's different from anything this creation can even begin to. It just, it points to him, but it's not like him. And, um. So Paul is, is tasting this. He was, he was brought into this new world, this world of the kingdom of God, this world of the power of the, the kingdom coming, breaking in on him, the power of God's presence. And his life he spent as a wordsmith trying to, to, to express and preach and write the unspeakable, trying to describe things that, that can't be described. And he, this is one of those moments. He's describing God as all in all. There's an eternal quality about this phrase. And, and this, is, this, is, this is what our Christian life is. Our Christian life is not of this age. It's not of this world. It's different from anything this world has to offer us. Totally different. And, and it can only be comprehended by, by revelation, by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God joining together in our life and opening us up to this beautiful concept. So I want to talk to you about, about Christ being all in all in our life. First, I used a phrase, swallowed up in God. Um, it, it's really the first time I heard this phrase when I was reading um, Jonathan Edwards, and he was writing his wife's testimony and how his wife had gotten touched in these revival meetings. She was touched for the first time. There were many people in their, their church had been visited by the Holy Spirit powerfully, and his wife had never been affected in a powerful way by the Holy Spirit until this one particular night. And it happened to be while, while Jonathan Edwards was away on a preaching 
um, 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 trip, and they had a guest speaker holding meetings for the whole week, and she gets slammed. I mean, slammed, slammed, where she has to get carried home kind of slammed. And she talks about how she was messed up for two weeks, trying to function, trying to take care of 10 children and all the other responsibilities that she had. And she said that she felt like, this was her word, that she felt like her life had been totally swallowed up by God. Swallowed up by God. Now that's, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. This is, this is really, this has changed my whole concept of Jonah and the whale. That wasn't the devil that swallowed Jonah up, my friends. He was swallowed up by God. Absolutely. God protected him from his, his own stupidity, swallowed him up, swam him around for a while and spit him out on the beach. And he was never going to be the same after he, t- he had been in the belly of that fish. When you get in the belly of that fish, you'll never be the same again. I'm sure, can you imagine the way he looked? He had stomach gases, bleached his whole body. He looked like a weird specimen. I mean, I hate to even say this, you might get mad at me, but you know, kind of the way what happened to poor Michael Jackson before he died, he was kind of bleached. That's what happened to Jonah. He got bleached. And it wasn't from human chemicals, it was from God touching him in this belly of this whale. He was, he was bleached. He looked strange. <laughs> Okay, it's going to be okay. So Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is describing this, this work of God that affected David. David was swallowed up. It happened to him when he was just a boy. He heard this voice say, hey, come, come. Samuel's at the house. Your dad wants to see you. Samuel wants to see you. And he came in and Samuel, the prophet, poured this oil on his head. But more than oil was poured on David's head that day. The, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, began to rush upon him from that day forward. And David's life was, was swallowed up. Swallowed up in God. Now let me explain to you what I mean by by swallowed up in God. Paul's a great example of this. Paul talks about how how he was crucified with Christ. He said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but, but Christ lives in me. So... That encounter with God for, for Paul was a, was a death and it was a resurrection. It was a death of the person he used to be. He was no longer Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was now Paul, the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. His life was transformed. His life was transformed by the, by the glory of God. He lost his, his own identity, and he had an identity. He had a, a major identity. He had an identity as being a Pharisee. He was politically powerful. He was economically powerful. He was, spirit, he was religiously powerful. He was powerful in all the worlds that, that really mattered in Israel, except he didn't know God. And that day he died, he died on the Damascus roads. He died to himself. And he was swallowed up in God. And God became his passion. But li- listen carefully, carefully to me. God became his identity. That became who he was. I, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Glory. 
That's what happens in our life. That's what changes in our life. We lose our identity. You know, I remember growing up, I, I, tried, I was trying to find my identity. I was a little boy. I had a four-year-old birthday, and it was Davy Crockett. For weeks and weeks, I wear my raccoon cap and my little gun and, and walked around. I was pretending to be Davy Crockett, and then there was Zorro, and then there was Superman, and then there was the Cowboys. And I'm sure none of you did any of those things as a, as a child, but then you became a teenager, and it was rock and roll, and you were trying to emulate these horrible people. Until the day... Until that instead of finding your own identity in this world, I mean, there's all kinds of identity. I'm the bowler. I'm the Harley guy. I'm the hoodat. I'm the golfer. I'm the fisherman. I'm the whatever. I'm the guy with the Rolex. I'm the guy with the Jaguar. I'm the guy with the career. That's not our identity. None of those things are our identity. Even though we might do some of those things, that's not who we are. We are sons of God. We've been swallowed up in God. He's got a purpose for our life that's beyond anything. That's the message of Paul. It's, it's all in all, swallowed up, swallowed up in God. It says it like this in the Phillips Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. In the J.B. Phillips, this is, Nevertheless, when everything created has been made subject and obedient to God, then, then shall the Son acknowledge himself subject to God, who gave the Son power over all things. Thus, in the end, God shall be holy and absolutely God. This is, this is what Martin Luther used to say. He'd say this. He said, let God be God. Just let God be God. Let God be God in your life. Let God be God in your life. Now, what does that mean? I want to I read a quote from Andrew Murray's sermon on this verse, all in all. Here's a quote that he had to say about it. He said, ah, the blessedness of saying God and I, and what a privilege that I have such a partner. God first and then I. Yet there might be secret self-exaltation in associating God with myself. And I find in the Bible a more precious word still. It is God and not I. It is not God first and I second. God is all and I'm nothing. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all, though I be nothing. Let us try to give God his place, begin in our closet, in worship, and in our prayer. Now, this next sentence can be life-changing. The power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our apprehension. Everyone say, our apprehension. Entirely upon our apprehension of who it is with whom I'm speaking. When, there, when, it, when the light finally turns on, and you see who it is. When, 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 when Moses was looking into the bush and said, who shall I say? When Moses realized who it was, everything changed for him. When Peter realized it was more than just a, a miracle worker, but when he saw who it was on his boat, he was undone. When Paul saw on the Damascus Road who he was, he was undone. When John on the Isle of Patmos saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he was undone because he saw another level of who he was. Who is Christ? Who do men say that I am? And then Jesus asked the question to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? 
You know, for us to say Jesus is the Son of God is one thing because of hundreds of years of Christian culture that's part of our life, and it's, it's okay to say that. Even the Mormons call Jesus the Son of God. They don't mean what I mean when they say it, but they call Him the Son of God. For Peter to utter those words, you are the Son of God, was absolutely shocking. It was, it was blasphemy to the worst degree if it wasn't true. It was blasphemy that would be hit, cause him to be, end up on a cross where he ended up on a cross because of who he recognized who it was he was talking to. God Almighty, creator of all things, who is the lover of my soul, who is my heavenly father, who's brought me into relationship and intimacy with him, who sent his Holy Spirit upon me. He's brought me into his presence to realize who he is. Let God be God. In Romans 8, 28, Paul said it like this. It's part of God being all in all. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to to his purpose. Paul, what was Paul talking about? He was talking about what happened to him when he was in Philippi. He was, he was trying to start a church in Philippi. He had gone there by revelation. He had a dream. He saw a man calling to him in a dream to come to Macedonia, and he went, led by the Holy Spirit. He went there, and he was having very meager results. They had a prayer meeting by the, by the river. There was hardly anybody coming to this prayer meeting. But God had a plan. God causes all things to work together for good to those who please God. Paul couldn't understand why there wasn't a breakthrough, why there wasn't the crowds coming like he'd seen in the other cities when he went. But God had a plan. It was different in Philippi than anywhere else. And so he went and he was on his way to this small prayer meeting one day and there was this servant girl following him saying, these are servants of the Most High God. She was a medium. She was filled with devils. And he said, come out of her. And she was delivered. Well, he got arrested for that little thing, that little deed. They threw him in jail, and, and they beat him to within an inch of his life. They gave him what they'd call the death sentence, beating him with rods. And he was put in stocks and bonds, and it was midnight, bleeding and in pain and suffering. And it was in midnight. Instead of sitting there saying, oh, God, why hasn't this church grown? Oh, God, why have you allowed me to go through these things? Why am I in such pain right now? That wasn't what he was doing. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to my cry. Ah, he brought me out of a miry pit. He set me on the, my rock to stay. I will sing. I will sing a new song. He began to sing to the Lord. Paul and Silas began to sing to the Lord. They began to worship and glorify God. In that prison, the prison began to shake. The chains fell off. The prisoners were set free. They were sitting there stunned. The, the jailer got saved, the prisoners got saved, the family got saved, and revival was on in Philippi. God was causing all things to work together for good in his life. It happens like that. You know, one of my favorite stories in the, from the, the, in the Great Awakening was the story of one of the young converts. His name was David Brainerd. David Brainerd was the son of a farmer, and he, he got saved, and he decided he was going to go into the ministry, and he went to the, to the place where they were, they were training the, the next generation of preachers. It was a university, maybe you've heard of this school before, it was called Yale University. You ever heard of it before? That's where he went. And he was there, and, and they had a guest speaker that came to the, 
to preach at, the, at, their, at their chapel, young guy in his early 20s by the name of George Whitfield came and preached, and um, that place was lit up. I mean, but it was, it was lit up in a good way and in a bad way. It divided the thing right in two. Everybody, there were some getting saved and excited and some that hated everything that was going on. Well, the, the, the dean of the university hated what was going on, began to criticize Whitfields. And Brainerd, being a young college student, anyone here ever been a young college student that did stupid things before? Anybody? I'm sure none of you ever did that. But he was, so he was... He was offended by what this dean criticizing George Whitfield, so he spoke against the dean in the privacy of his dormitory with his roommates. Well, his roommate went and blew the whistle on him. Next thing you know, he's expelled from the university. Expelled, just like that. Gone. Jonathan Edwards tried to intervene for him, and he, they wouldn't hear of it. He was gone. And in those days, if you didn't have a university degree from Yale, there was no ordination, there was no ministry, there was no church. You were done. And so he ended up just going out and ministering to the Indians out in the woods, Native Americans. Went out into the woods. He spent the next few years of his life preaching, writing his, his journal. He ended up getting sick and dying as he brought revival to, to the Indians. He, he by, by God's, you know, God causes what? All things to work together for the good. Well, he, he ended up dying. He made his way to Jonathan Edwards' home and died at Edwards' house. Edwards took his journal and he edited and wrote this book called The Diary of David Brainerd. It's still in print today. It's been read by thousands and thousands and thousands, and it's been given credit over the years to birthing the modern missions movement. If you go back and look at every missionary back in the 1800s when the foreign missionary movement was birthed, they're all going to go, each one's going to go and say, I was inspired reading this diary, and I went to the nations. What we're seeing around the world today, international revival in Africa, in South America, in China, a lot of it can be traced to this young man's diary. In his mind, looking at the way things were, it looked like he didn't do that much. He touched a, a few hundred um, Native Americans. He got expelled from school. He died in disgrace in some people's eyes. But God caused all things to work together for the good. And the world is a better place as a result of that young man's testimony. Don't go by what you see, my friends. Go, don't go by what you see. If God is your God, if you're following him with all your heart, with all your mind, if your life is swallowed up, he is all in all. And he's causing everything. Begin to see his hand, his hand in the messy things. See his hand working in the things you don't even care for or even like. And you'll find on the other sides, something awesome will take place. Let me give you a couple other scriptures before we finish up here. Trust God, trust God's power. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul was complaining to the Lord. Lord, I'm tired of being persecuted. I'm tired. Every town I go into, they, they say ugly things about me. They throw me in jail. I've been beaten. I've been stoned over and over again. I don't want this to happen, Lord. Let, take this thorn out of my flesh. I don't want to experience this anymore. He was calling out to God, God, I don't want to be persecuted in, a, in any more towns. Just remove this from my life. And the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power, and this is what God told us, and my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, 
almost, Paul says, therefore I almost gladly boast in my weaknesses. In one translation it says, I'll take pleasure in my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ might dwell in me. For this reason I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions. For the sake of Christ, for wherever I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned about the power of God being displayed through weakness the hard way. Actually, the hard way is the only way. He experienced the proverbial thorn in the flesh. What was that thorn in the flesh? It was actually the persecution that followed Paul wherever he went. It started in Damascus shortly after his conversion and went throughout his entire ministry, ending with martyrdom in Rome. He faced being beaten with rods, whipped with a Roman scourge, stocks and bonds in prison. He was even stoned once and left for dead. As the beatings continued, the power increased. The power of God and revelation given to Paul by the Spirit were proportionally related to the persecution that Paul faced. As a a Christian, I've learned to roll with the punches, sometimes in betrayal or false accusation, other times in calamities like Katrina. Life can be painful, and committed Christians are not immune to the struggles that fill this life. How are we different from the lost? Our struggles increase our faith, drive us to a new level of intimacy with God, and create a hunger in us for God's Word. The results of all this is that the power and anointing of the Spirit increase in us. So what shall we do? Along with Paul, I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. So I'm offering myself. Here we are. We've only, we've only been given one life. We've only been given one body. You know, and when I think of that, I think of what um, Charles Wesley sang, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. He, he, he felt like that his praise was so inadequate and insufficient. Lord, why don't you give me 10,000 tongues? I want to sing. I want to glorify you. I want to let the world know what you've done in my life. I want to testify. Lord, give me a pulpit. Give me a place to share what God has done. Give me an audience to share an opportunity to proclaim the glory of God. To offer myself. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This body has been given to us to use for his glory. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the great things that we learned from Jesus. Jesus was not always a man. He became a man. He took upon himself a human body. And this human body, he taught us as the, as the first fruits of this new race. He taught us, he taught us about living our life for the glory of God. He taught us about being swallowed up in God. He taught us about yielding to God. He taught us about yielding our, our life to God, about enjoying God's presence and, and pursuing God with our life. To follow Christ, to offer ourselves in his footsteps, to follow after him and to live for the glory of God by the power of God in Jesus' name. I want to finish with this, this, last, this last thought about waiting. Here's, this is the place where we're swallowed, totally swallowed up in God. Maybe that's not something that, you know, uh, this, this topic isn't something that really interests everybody, being swallowed up in God. You know, people would rather hear a sermon. I'm not you, I mean, because obviously you're here and you know what I'm going to tell you. But, but you know, the, the, the poor prominent message is, 
is they want God to be their co-pilots, you know, God to help them find their way in life and help them to be a better them and to be a better at this and better at that. And if you do these three things, then you're going to be a better blah, blah, blah. And if you do these five things, then you can blah, blah, blah. And if you do these seven things, blah, 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 blah. And you'll be this and you'll be that. And everyone will look at you. You're the greatest and the best. You've got it going on. Instead of not even knowing who you are and turning their life to Christ. You, you're, you become invisible. Paul became the invisible man in his life. The invisible man. And Christ became the visible man. Listen to this. Waiting in his presence. One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is David again. And that will I seek after. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And here's what Paul said in Hebrews. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He's talking about Christ. We have Christ as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. Christ is our hope that enters into that inner place behind the curtain. He's entered into heaven as our representative, as a man, as the first resurrected man. He entered into heaven on our behalf signifying the way in is open for us, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The way in to the holiest of all is available for us. We can come in by the blood and we can, waiting in his presence, Shimon de Lesea, waiting in his presence, and he strengthens us and he helps us. I'll finish with this quote from David Brainerd, one of his, this was Monday, July 7th, probably the year he died. And he was um, talking about being encouraged in the Lord. He says, my spirits were considerably refreshed and raised in the morning. There's no comfort I find in in any enjoyment without enjoying God and being engaged in his service. Wow. He says, there's no comfort I find in any enjoyment without enjoying God. In other words, take God on your vacation and he's going to be your joy. You'll have more fun with your, in your devotions than you have with Mickey Mouse. You can still go to Mickey Mouse, but your devotions will be more fun than Mickey Mouse was. In the evening, I had the most agreeable conversation that ever I remember in all my life. We were talking about God being all in all. It was the most incredible conversation I've ever had in all my life. We were talking about Christ being all in all, parenthetical, and all enjoyments being just that to us, which God makes them and no more. Tis good to begin and end with God. Woo! It's good to begin and end with God. It's good to end and begin with God. How and how does a sweet solemnity lay a foundation for true, true pleasure? True pleasure and true happiness. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand. I have to confess. We have to, I have to make a confession. It says to confess your faults to one another or your sins. This isn't, a, I guess, a fault or a sin, but I'm going to confess it anyway. <laughs> I am an absolute pleasure seeker. A pleasure seeker. Boy, it's quiet in this place. A Christian hedonist. The pursuit of pleasure in God. To find, to pursue pleasure with all my heart, 
with all my soul, with all my might, with all my strength. And there's no possible way of, of overdoing it. There is a pleasure in God that's greater than any pleasure this world affords for us. Does that mean we can't do anything else? Absolutely not. It means everything else that God brings into our life will enjoy it more. You'll enjoy your marriage more. You'll enjoy your hobbies more. You'll enjoy your job more when God becomes your passion and your all in all. He brings life to all things in us. He brings life to our day-to-day, life to being a father, life to being a husband, life to being a wife, life to being a worker, life to being a Christian, life as a fisherman or life, whatever it is that you enjoy in your spare time. Life in God. Thanks for listening. Check out our website at www.victoryfellowship.net for service times and for more information.